Hello, and welcome to my new podcast, Mick Plus One, where I sit down with industry leaders to discuss the project to product movement. I'm Dr. Mick Kirsten, founder and CEO of Tastop and best-selling author of Project to Product, How to Survive and Thrive in the Age of Digital Disruption with the Flow Framework. Today, I'm absolutely thrilled to announce that my plus one is none other than Dr. Claudia Perez. Claudia is the author of the very influential book, Technological Revolutions and Financial Capital. She's a researcher, lecturer, and international consultant specialized in the social and economic impact of technological change. She's Centennial Professor of International Development at the London School of Economics, Professor of Technology and Development at the Technological University of Tallinn, Estonia, and Research Affiliate and Honorary Professor at SPRU at the University of Sussex. I've been massively influenced by Dr. Perez's work. I've read every one of her blog posts, her books, and have had the opportunity to keep meeting with her regularly. I'm thrilled that she let me record one of our usual teleconferences for everyone else to hear. So thank you for taking the time to join us today and learn from Claudia's research and insights on how we get to the golden age of software. Welcome everyone to the Project to Product podcast. I am so thrilled to have Dr. Claudia Perez join us today. Dr. Perez's work has influenced me more than I think just about anything I've read in the past few years. Jean Kim sent me her book and a summary of what he was reading and how much of an impact it had on him when I was trying to write Project to Product. And at that point, I was reflecting on my career. The passages that I was writing were the early stages of my career when I put together this big presentation that talked about the history of programming languages, which are really the core of how we build software. And I contrasted the history of programming languages to the history of cars, how we had a lot of this innovation in cars and they all looked different and they were, there was just tons of work going on to engines and bodies and transmissions and all of that. And I was seeing, wow, the same thing is happening with programming languages. There was all this excitement and different ways of doing programming and object-oriented and functional and so on. And I was in the middle of that. I was working on it as a researcher. And then I realized that we had shifted into the spirit of diminishing returns where there was less innovation. It was more about getting people to adopt these concepts. And so I realized that there was a wave that seemed similar to the wave that happened with, with automotive and with mass production. And then the moment I opened Claudia's book, I was hooked. I've read every single one of her blog posts, watched her talks, and she's really been the one to give me a frame of reference for what's happening in our careers today, why we're part of this bigger wave, not this never-ending onslaught of new innovations, new technologies that we have to deal with, but that we're part of a bigger historical context. So with that, Carlotta, welcome to the podcast. And it would be great if you could tell us why you're actually so optimistic around where we're headed in this technological revolution and in what you call a golden age. Well, thanks a lot for inviting me and also for giving me all this recognition, which I appreciate very much because I think you're doing fantastic work. I'm optimistic in a very strange way. I'm sort of like the most pessimistic optimist you'll ever find. I'm optimistic because history tells me that we are at the precise moment when we could change course for the better. It has happened four times before. This is the fifth turning point, as I call it, in the fifth technological revolution. The first revolution was the Industrial Revolution, then came the railways and iron, then came the whole big heavy engineering revolution, then came the automobile, and now we have information technologies. And each of them has gone through three very clear periods. One first one, which is all about finance, really this madness, booms, 
and then a huge crash. Then a second period, which I call a turning point, which can be as short as two years or as long as the 1930s, including a war, or as long as now, because we are now precisely in what I call the turning point, which is what happens after the bubble collapses. And then that turning point is the moment when all the problems emerge. You see all the problems, the inequality. You see the destruction of regions. You see people who are resentful and desperate and populist leaders. I mean, we had Hitler and we had communism in the 1930s. We now have all these right-wing and left-wing populists picking up on the resentment of the victims of what is actually in every technological revolution, what Schumpeter called creative destruction. So all the new things have to destroy the old things. And that's what happens in what's called the installation period, which is the one that you have just been talking about, all the changes that happened in the 1990s and the 2000s. We had this huge bubble when you have all the changes of the revolution happening, just like in the Roaring Twenties. So what happens after the turning point is what's wonderful. That's when the golden ages happen. So we had the Victorian boom for the second revolution. We had the Belle Epoque for the third. We had the post-war boom for the fourth. And now we could have a global, sustainable golden age. Believe it or not, what we could actually have is for the whole world what we had for the advanced world in the 1950s and 60s, which meant picking up every single worker practically into middle-income lives. And of course, a whole prosperous society with lots of businesses being extremely successful. So in fact, that golden age is what comes after this ugly period that we're going through. So that's why I'm optimistic. I'm pessimistic because I do not see the leaders moving forward. I'm pessimistic because the business community has bought into this get the state out of the way story, which is catastrophic because precisely what happens at turning points is that the state comes in and changes the playing field that everybody moves in similar directions and that all the possibilities that the new technologies offer are used across the board in the economy. And not only do they benefit business, but they also benefit regular people, workers, employees of all sorts. In fact, every revolution destroys many jobs, destroys many skills, destroys many regions, but the golden ages create new possibilities and they are not all necessarily high-tech In fact, if you look at what happened in the golden age after the Second World War, what happened was not that the mass production revolution created all the jobs. In fact, if you look at manufacturing, manufacturing in the U.S. tripled in value in those 20 years, and it only increased 30% in workers. Because, of course, it was increasing productivity constantly. Where were the jobs? The jobs were in three areas. Services, construction, and government. Why? Because the direction that government gave to the society of the moment, to the economy of the moment, was precisely suburbanization and the Cold War. So you had all the military industries. 
you had the energy industries and suburbanization, which allowed having cheap houses on cheap land with government backing through Fannie Mae so that the banks were willing to lend to get mortgages to people who had monthly salaries and could lose their job at some point, and therefore it would be really dangerous. You had to have unemployment insurance, which was a very important institutional innovation to make business be sure that they could sell automobiles and refrigerators and the banks could have mortgages because people would be covered during those months and they wouldn't be sending the keys back. So basically, the thing is that every golden age is shaped by government tilting the playing field. We don't have those leaders now. People are not talking about that. And the second thing that worries me about the lack of leadership is that business is really not helping people who could be transforming government itself to stop being bureaucratic and heavy because that was the way it had to be during mass production. That's the way IBM was. That's the way General Motors was. I mean, government was just copying them and it was as good as they were. But when they had to change, government didn't change. So optimism plus pessimism That's my current position. Very interesting. And I think you said a key thing that I think for a lot of the listeners for myself is very inspirational, which is the fact that we're at the precise moment where we can change course for the better. So even though these problems may seem insurmountable, I think we've actually seen new ideas get out there that can benefit the lives of all these people working in this technological revolution. And then also, I think, influence businesses, business leadership, and government institutions to create, as you say, to tilt the field in the right direction to enable this. So I remember this conversation I was having with Gene really early on, when a lot of my focus was around ways to build technology more productively. As you can imagine, same way that we got lean technologies and better ways of manufacturing, I was obsessed with how we can be more productive writing code. And Gene said, well, shouldn't we be thinking about not just the technology, but the fact that these companies have thousands, in some cases, 100,000 technology workers, IT workers, and what things are like for them. They're seeking this change. They want a better environment. They don't want their organization, some, many of which were created in the last revolution, to disappear because a lot of these organizations are on the decline, even large banks being on the decline because they've not adapted to where we are today. So, Carlotta, can you speak a little bit more to this? Because I think one thing that you're saying is we need a a better context for these changes to happen. I think we also need leaders in organizations, be they government, be they corporations, to think differently, I think, before they get displaced by the natives of this age, the tech giants, the technology unicorns, who've used the fact that we don't have the right kind of context to slow them down to really displace larger and larger parts of the economy? Well, the first thing is that people don't know where to go. I mean, what type of innovation should you make? How should you change your business? How should you change your products? Nothing of that is clear. What I suggest is that we have to get governments to understand that the environmental problems, which are now seen as problems, are actually the solution to the other problems we have, which are the social problems, the unemployment problems, the skilling problems, the economy not growing. There is this illusion of growth. But I mean, look, 
1%, half a percent? What's this? We need much more growth, but we need growth to be immaterial. We don't need to use more energy and more materials. We need more services. We need more intangibles. We need to change the whole thing, including especially lifestyles. The thing is that the lifestyle of mass production, which was created and facilitated by government, because what government did, now, first of all, you have to understand that mass production needs mass consumption. That's what business understood during the war. In fact, in the 1930s, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt wanted to make workers do something so they would have incomes and so on because he thought he needed demand, what happened was that business insisted on free markets, no government. And then they discovered that during the war, they had this mass demand. And the mass demand that they had was what allowed them to make leaps in productivity and discover all the power of mass production. So when the war was over, they suddenly realized goodness, without this demand, what are we going to do? And that's when mass consumption came to their rescue. And then they accepted, you know how high the tax rate was for the top tax rate in the Eisenhower years, the Republican Eisenhower government in the 1950s, the top rate was 92%. 92%. And it was accepted because it went from your pocket to the pocket of government, from the pocket of government to the pocket of a consumer, or as the direct demand from government for the military things or for education or for whatever the government was doing. And that guaranteed that business could continue very prosperous because there was demand. And that's one of the things that every golden age has done, is to actually provide dynamic demand for business. And one of the things we need to do now in this new direction that we need to give, which is not suburbanization, home ownership, and the Cold War, well, we will have, of course, military demand. But it is not that, but actually we need a smart green lifestyle. So we need to create conditions for everybody to want to have less things and more services, less physical material objects, less permanent possessions and more services, more intangible things, and to turn products into services. Actually, what mass production did was to turn every service into a product, including everything you did with your hands, all the way to brushing your teeth and opening cans. Everything had to be turned into an electric little thing that would do the thing for you. Well, now we need the opposite. And we have been doing it. We have been doing it with films. We have been doing it with music. We have been doing it with books. So lots of things are now services. But there is also the whole idea of the possibility of renting rather than buying and the possibility of maintenance rather than disposal. So instead of planned obsolescence, which was a very smart strategy applied by mass production producers in order to make the same person buy a refrigerator five times in their lifetime rather than have a long-lasting refrigerator. 
and no maintenance, it was practically eliminated. Now we need to bring maintenance back because we have an environmental problem. We have limits to the planet. We don't have enough materials and we don't have. So imagine if all those jobs that were lost in manufacturing were to become maintenance jobs in a rental economy based on the advantages that information technology gives us. Just think, every product with Internet of Things has a history on it so that you can have, if you're going to rent it like a thing like an Amazon book, how many years and what problems it has had and what it looks like. And so you know a lot about it and it has different prices depending on the thing. Then you don't produce any more spare parts. Nobody produces spare parts. Every time you need one, you 3D print it. You diagnose with even maybe remotely, you diagnose what's going on if somebody has a problem with the cooker or the refrigerator or any of the appliances or the car. And then the whole thing means that a whole lot of people who were working in the manufacturing area could become maintenance people because they very easily could learn what they have to do in order to do that. So they would install, they would change and so on. And then you could have products that would last a hundred years. And every time you redesign and you bring a better design, then you have on the web all the information for all the rental companies, because of course, it wouldn't be the producers who would do the renting. There would be new companies doing the rental and the maintenance. And of course, at some point, the product has to be disassembled and then you take all the materials. So you go, which things are going to really be disposed of, which things are going to be recycled, reused, etc. So we have a completely different economy where we value resources. It's very funny, you know, the word productivity, our notion of productivity is only about labor. We have never, never, never even thought of the productivity of energy, the productivity of resources. We have never measured it. We have never thought it was important, even though you have to pay for it. Why? Because everything was so cheap. Energy was so cheap. Materials were so cheap. They were produced in the third world where development was not happening, whereas the actual workers in the advanced world earned a lot of money, so they were expensive. So what you had to do was to reduce the amount of labor and change it for energy. So the whole system, we're in another system now. We need to shift and favor labor and reduce and make very expensive energy and very expensive materials. So innovation will go in the direction of saving materials and saving energy. And that not only to have renewable energy, but to use less conservation would be a very important thing. Can you imagine all the innovation that could happen if we were to change all the materials to biomaterials, if we were to make things last 100 years, 120 years? When I was young, that was a long, long time ago, refrigerators lasted 30, 40 years easily. We didn't think you had to change them. So, of course, we have the technologies to make anything last whatever time we want. And also to renew, you can update and upgrade and do all sorts of things in between. And, of course, that would also mean that the lowest paid would enter the consumption ladder sooner because they can rent at a very low price. You can have a refrigerator for a dollar a month. And that's it because that's the end of life of the thing. But it's still working. It's still working. There's no reason why it shouldn't be. So, 
Of course, the whole idea of planned obsolescence occurred when markets were saturated and then you needed to increase markets artificially. Now we have China growing, we have all, and we could have, that's the other direction we need to have, we could have full global development. Imagine if all the developing countries were actually developing for real, because the word developing is almost a way of making people feel better, but it doesn't really reflect reality. If they were really developing, there would be enormous markets for capital goods producers, for engineering design, for all sorts of things that would actually create the conditions for them to be able to produce their own living and all these things. It would reduce migration because it would create better conditions in all the countries, and that would reduce the problems at the same time as it creates jobs in the advanced world. I mean, the possibilities of these technologies to transform the world economy for the better are enormous, enormous. We just have to understand them and actually get governments to put the right direction so that things will go. That means everything. That means changing taxation. We have to tax materials, energy, and transport rather than what we tax now, which is really salaries and profits. That's the main things we tax when we need to tax the things that we want to reduce. We want to increase salaries and we want to increase profits. And that's because that's what makes demand and that's what makes profits and that's what makes for investment. So we have to rethink the whole thing. Governments have to almost turn around our whole head. And economists have been giving such bad advice because they are the ones who are responsible for governments believing that markets are going to do it alone. They have never done it alone. It has always been with government direction, government tilting the playing field in certain directions. And now we have a very clear direction that would create enormous amounts of opportunities for innovation. So, Carlo, that that is some really amazing food for thought for our listeners, because I've got the benefit of every couple months you being patient enough to, to talk to me about these ideas. And I've gotten to learn how much of a mind shift this really is. And this mind shift I've noticed is in today's technology and business leaders, how important it is. So just... To rewind a little bit on on what you said there, this mass production lifestyle and mass consumption that really came from the last revolution, one of the biggest problems I saw is that's still the mentality that we have in organizations today. Whereas I think we already know it, right? I've been a great mass consumer of gadgets, but it's very hard for me now to get excited about a new rectangular piece of glass, however many cameras it has on it. We know we're basically at peak iPhone. We're at peak car or very close to peak car already, according to some studies I actually just read last week. And these organizations who still have, who are completely built around this mass consumption mentality, not this more service-oriented and support and maintenance-oriented way that tech giants think. By the way, that's the interesting thing is they've made the shift already. They think in terms of these services and in terms of digital products. They're consumed in a completely different way. What I'm seeing is just taking the car manufacturers, they know how disrupted they're getting. But they realize they think they're getting disrupted because Tesla has a lot of nice software in the car or dealerships are going away. Those are pretty significant disruptions. In, in Jeffrey Moore's terms, those are infrastructure model disruptions and operating model disruptions. But if all of a sudden what you're saying takes hold, which I think we both believe it has to and is taking hold, which is that the consumer mindset shifts completely away from a mass consumption mindset 
because this next generation appears does know better, you've actually got an entire business landscape disruption, or what Jeffrey Moore calls a business model disruption. It's no longer on consuming cars. It's just around renting away from, to get from point A to point B. And what I think what's happening, again, is this is clear to you with your historical context, but we've got leaders of the world's largest organizations still completely in a mass consumption mindset around, you know, that came out of mass production and physical products. But I think that's actually the same thing. Sometimes I think governments are actually two ages back, by the way, and maybe that's a whole other, <laughs> where they only think of products and labor. That's their entire model of productivity. My own work, by the way, has completely shifted is how do you measure productivity in technology? Like you said, we have no idea. We learned it some, I think, for mass production, but we still haven't learned how to do it in technology production. So my question there is, I think you are predicting looking at the predictions you made back in 2002 with the publication of Technological Revolution and Financial Capital, that the landscape will shift, right? That consumer sentiment, citizen sentiment will actually cause these changes as it has. Well, first of all, is that accurate? Do you think things will shift over the coming years? Well, first of all, I see some things that are already happening. One thing that's happening is that there are companies, especially in the capital goods area, that are already moving in the direction of turning their products into services. Rolls-Royce no longer sells the airplane engines. They now rent the service of the engine so that they go and they fix it and they make sure they're constantly taking care of the engines that continue to belong to Rolls-Royce and are being used by the airplanes and then they fix them. Michelin, the tires, they rent the tire service to the truck companies, to the logistics companies, and then they make sure that all their tires are perfect. General Electric is renting hospital equipment also. So this idea that you can rent the thing that people need and you can make sure that they are constantly, that you take care of the service, that you actually make sure that it's working all the time, this is already happening in some areas. Another thing that's happening is more political. You now see that the business roundtable, which is the top, even the financial guys, all these guys, understood. They're all guys, no gals there. They understood. more gals there, as we know. Yeah, very few gals in the top table. They said, look, this shareholder capitalism is not working. We got to go towards stakeholder capitalism. Yep. And this is happening more and more. People are already talking about this. The populist movement, in a way, is making people aware the sort of center parties are realizing that they're losing out to these very extremist leaders who promise heaven and people believe them because they're so desperate. You know, the whole thing. So many people have been victims of the changes that have happened, you know, globalization has reduced jobs, technology has reduced jobs, people have moved from very complex, very well-paying jobs to selling hamburgers, you know, and sometimes having to have two or three jobs or doing Uber driving or something to be able to sort of cover their mortgages and all the possessions that they have, because that's how the whole model was. We could be able, perhaps, there's also the beginning Uber itself is like an example of something that could be happening that people would stop having their own cars and start just having the access to a car whenever they want it, be it with the driver or without a driver or themselves driving, depending on the systems, because there are various systems are being tried in various parts of the world. So there are many things happening 
that point in the direction. The young, the very young, are completely different. The millennials, they really, they care about meaning. They're not even learning how to drive. They ride a bicycle. They're vegan or vegetarian. They eat less meat. They actually worry about the environment and they know that their future depends on that. So there again, we have a force. Of course, there are two glass ceilings in the current society, one ceiling for the women and another ceiling for the young. There are too many people. I'm 80. I'm not stopping. I'm writing. I'm working. I'm teaching. I'm doing everything. And there are so many people when you look at all these political leaders, they're in their 70s. That's not normal. But it has become normal because we're living so much longer. So that's one of the problems too, because people who were brought up in the mass production world and in the bureaucratic world do not know how to be agile, do not know how to think in a more digital, non-material world. And those are the guys who are working, guys generally, although some gals too, working in government, working in top posts in companies and so on. We need younger people to be given more responsibility. If younger people were given more responsibility, they would be innovating in the direction that we need innovation because they think differently. They are a sort of hope for the future. Exactly. And I think this is, we've got these two almost opposing thoughts, right? This is the precise moment that we can change course for the better. And then something that someone challenged me with is, well, why don't we just wait for this generation of business leaders to go away and federal government leaders to go away? I was thinking this, I was seriously asking myself this question. And then inspired by you, inspired by others in, in this community, I thought, no, we can't wait. We have to get no, them to think differently. Wait. Definitely not. And one of the ways of thinking differently, the only, like you said, the only shot they have of driving innovation is to actually give those younger people more responsibility because those younger people actually understand the socioeconomic context you just described that businesses now need to thrive in. If they're still thinking of basically thriving as a car company by making cooler cars, they've got it completely backwards. Because this planned obsolescence, this getting the next car, it's no longer the context, right, in terms of this technological revolution. It's the one from the last one. So again, I think this is just such a profound thing that everyone needs to take the time to internalize if they don't want their organizations to decline. Because if they're managing and leading their organizations or their federal agencies this way, they haven't adapted to this age. So Carlotta, just... You know, these golden ages, I know you've been doing even more research now in terms of the historical context. And maybe if you could just close on what you're working on now and give us any sense for what these golden ages look and feel like so we know what to look for, other than the fact that younger people are actually more engaged and empowered and we're shifting to their ways, to their world. Well, I began by telling you that my optimism is rooted in history, right? So that is what I'm doing. I am now looking at the whole history from the Industrial Revolution until today and looking at each of the revolutions and how they went through the installation period, how it was during the turning point with all the populists turning up and all these things, and then how government came in and fixed the context and we had the golden ages. So I am going through that process and I am, first of all, confirming that that's how it happens, which is sort of reconforting because you realize that you're onto a good thing, that I can be optimistic again. So that's what I'm doing. I'm writing this. I am hoping that with that, I will make other people be both optimistic and active. If people understand what they have to do, they will do it. Because right now, people are at a loss, really. 
it's not clear. Lots of people are saying the world is becoming horrendous, all these dictators everywhere and people complaining and all these demonstrations, desperation, people voting for very extreme offers and all these, you know, there is so little stability. There is so much violence, so many migrants desperately moving from one country to the other, so many internal wars, so many ugly things. How can you be optimistic? Well, look at history. These moments, these horrible moments have happened before. I always think that if somebody was standing in front of a soup kitchen in the 1930s, seeing all these very hungry, desperate, unemployed people who have never owned anything, who used to rent and no longer have a home, and who are really desperately looking for a bit of food to survive, And you were to say, you know what? In 10 years, those people will have a job, a permanent job for life. They will have a house full of electrical appliances and a car at the door, and their kids will probably go to university. That would have been so ridiculously incredible that you would have been nothing, impossible, not believable. Well, it did happen. So somehow that gives me strength. The fact that it has been horrible before, as horrible as now, I realize that there are lots of people who don't realize how horrible it is. Because there is this layer that's always like that in every installation period, in the early times of each revolution, lots of millionaires are made, lots of people become very rich. And then you have this decoupling of finance from production and a decoupling of the rich from the poor. And they don't even see them. They don't realize how much suffering there is. The debt, right now, the debt is a third of GDP. It's like 15 trillion, talking about the US. People are stuck in horrible debt and they have no hope. How are they going to be when they're old? All the pension funds and with this business of zero interest rates, people are saving and they're not saving, they're losing. So, The whole society is all screwed up. They're disorganized. It's disassembled. It's disjointed. And we need to get back to a hopeful future. We need a new golden age that gives people an aspirational good life, which is a different sort of good life, a good life based on creativity, exercise, health, all experiences, things that are intangible and that are much more rewarding than just having things. Couch potatoes, that's finished. People now are doing exercise and they're much more alive and they're much more communicative. Instead of being in the house, just watching TV, one person, two persons, the family, the father, the mother, and the two kids. We now have people going outside or moving, of course. Lots of them are just standing in front of their mobile or their iPad. So, There is that, but that is part of the new smart green life. It's about lots of digital things, lots of ICT, lots of artificial intelligence, whatever you want, because we should not fear artificial intelligence and robotics. Those things must come to create very high productivity in some sectors of the economy so that we have enough wealth for it to go around. And that is how it always happens. We need those technologies. We need to make the leap in productivity, which we are not making yet. 
And with that, we will be able then to make everybody's life better. And that's what the whole process is about. That could not be, I think, a better or more inspirational ending for this audience, right? As we still we need to continually better understand this new socioeconomic context, how it really is continuing to shift and shift faster now than perhaps it has over the past few decades. And I think, Carlotta, I know that your ideas will continue to inspire, shape, and, and define my career as we progress towards this golden age. And I think most importantly, everyone listening can be a part of that change. Because it, again, if you're stuck in the old world of mass consumption, you're not actually leading your organization to the right way. Whereas if you're taking this new world of intangibles, of services, and software and digital with the mindset of what it needs to deliver to society, to our governments, our businesses, and to people, I think you will be a part of this change that gets us through this turning point. So with that, Carlotta, I wanted to thank you so sincerely. Thank you for taking the time to be a part of this. And quickly, where can people follow your, your work? My website is carlottaperez.org. And there, there is a link to another website, which has to do with my current project. That, and I follow it very closely, so I recommend everybody else does as well. So thank you so much, Carlotta. There is also my Twitter feed, at Carlotta Press Press. Excellent. <laughs> okay, thank great. You. What an amazing conversation. Thank you for listening. And thank you again to Dr. Perez for taking the time to join us. Don't forget, I have a new episode every two weeks, so hit subscribe and join us again. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review, and you can follow me and my journey on Twitter at Mick underscore Kirsten, or using the hashtag Mick plus one for the latest podcast updates.